All right. Mark 12, verses 35 to chapter 13, verse 2 says this. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, declared, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly, and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, and devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers. They will receive their greater, the, the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people, putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and, out and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, just this chance in the end of Mark to slow down and look at the final week of your life and consider the things that you said in the temple, the, the things that you said to your disciples, and God, these words that ring true in our lives this day. God, we pray for your word. Um, I, I just ask God that you would get me out of the way and that Holy Spirit, you would speak uh, through me and, and to our hearts, God, encourage us from your scripture uh, what we need to hear from, from this morning's passage. God, you are mighty and you are here to do mighty things within us. And so God, we give ourselves to you. We ask that you change us and mold us into your image in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Um, so, does anybody like commercials? Yeah. Fan of commercials? Wow, all right. Here you are. This is true. This is true. When we're watching like a sporting event or whatever, my kids are like, oh, the commercial's on. I got to watch. And they'll like run during the game to go get food or whatever. But when the commercials come on, they come back and want to see the commercial. Um, so, I've got a couple of things. Commercials and advertising, fun. Fun stuff, right? Fun stuff. They like to portray something, and so we've got a fun game for you. Well, not really a game for you, but just, a, just a, a funny, some funny pictures to share with you about what's done in marketing versus what actually happens in real life. So there's this guy that has a website that uh, looks at marketing of sandwiches, right? We don't, we don't, okay, just, just so you know, before we get caught, there isn't a sandwich in Scripture today, okay? We've been talking about sandwiches in the book of Mark. Okay, there's no, there's no sandwich. The only sandwich is in the illustration, okay? Just make sure you knew I wasn't going in any liter literary sandwiches. Um, okay, so we got the McDonald's Big Mac here. Which one is the advertisement? And which one? <laughs> this is like, <laughs> it's not even a question, right? Like, here's the advertisement. Here's what you get when you order it through the drive-thru. Okay, the next one. We've got the Jack in the Box jalapeno burger. Looks, oh my gosh, I want one right now. My mouth is watering, and that's about right. I mean, the taste, you know, it's the same. But anyway. The next one, we've got some, oh, some Carl's Jr. Ranch bacon fries. 
Yeah, I mean, you can tell there's there's been some uh, some filters on here, some different changes to make these to make these these things look good. Um, and, and this is about representative of the heart of the individual making, you know, making the fries uh, on the other side of the counter, right? This is exactly what's coming out. Um, so we've got kind of two sections of our, our passage today, and the first is this, this discussion about appearance versus reality, right? In, in, in fast food marketing, they want to catch you with this beautiful image of what you're going to experience when you order this sandwich. It's wonderful, just plated very carefully, one little slice at a time, just perfect. But in actual, they're trying to pump out like 100 sandwiches every 10 minutes, and that's not how they're going to come out when you're going that fast. So, um, so we're going to be talking about, as you might have picked up on as we read through this passage, that throughout each of these um, little vignettes or whatever of the passage, there's this, this difference between what appears and what is true. There's this idea of appearance versus what's really happening. What is shown on the outside and what is inside the heart are not one and the same. And so we're going to walk through, starting in verse 38 um, to 40 is the first kind of example of this. We're going to come back to uh, later talking about uh, where, where Jesus started in, uh, in verses 35 to 37 where he calls out the scribes. So I'm going to start with uh, this section where Jesus is in the temple and he is teaching there and he might be teaching something familiar that you might have remembered. Yeah. Yes, yes. She was, she was struggling. See, it's been too long since I asked you that question, right? The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. So he's teaching this same message over and over again uh, as he's teaching. And here he goes off on a number of things that he wants to also discuss that Mark highlights to us. He says in verse 38, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and place places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive their greater condemnation. This is right after Jesus has kind of commended one scribe for his question and answer back and forth last week that we looked at uh, for being very close to the kingdom of God. Here he turns and, and goes straight at the scribes and says, beware of the scribes, because this is what the scribes are marked by. They're marked by walking around in long robes. The robes of the scribes were thought to be like white um, and, and just very not, not colorful and very bright, okay? Um, whereas the, the kind of the, the typical dress of the people in Jerusalem would have just been colorful, uh, maybe dingy because they're not new clothing. It's just kind of like you're, you're living with what you got and that kind of thing. And so the scribes would stand out because they would have bright white clothing that they would be seen as they're walking anywhere, right? There's a scribe. He is a scribe, right? Um, so they walk around these long robes. They like to be greeted in the marketplace. Um, they like the best seats in the synagogue. Um, Christy's got the best seat in our synagogue here, exactly the big, big king's chair back there. I thought about bringing that up front, to, but it was just, anyway. Um, in the synagogue, you'd have kind of a square set up, and the, the, uh, the altar would be toward the front, and the best seats were actually along the wall. So all, all along the wall were the, quote, best seats in the synagogue, and the, the best of the best seats were at the front in the center of the synagogue. So behind the stage, you know, against the wall there would be the best seats. And so they loved getting the best seat in the synagogue. 
um, there. They love the places of honor at the feast. So on the outside, they, they love these things and, and were uh, encouraged by these outward appearances. But in the reality, verse 40, they devoured widows' houses and for a pretense made long prayers. We were talking this morning about how much we value prayer a little bit before, before service, and, and that's very known here. But uh, as you know, there's no pretense in our prayer here. I mean, we're really trying to pray for one another and, and pray for the Lord to show up in our lives and to be present with us. And, um, but the prayers of these, these scribes were just for a pretense. They were just using their education and their language to look puffed up and look educated and look impressive to those around them. They weren't praying to pray to the Lord, the God of heaven. They were praying to be seen by men and be exalted and patted on the back for their big, you know, their big words. Jesus challenged us and warned us of this uh, mentality in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verse 1, where he says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When you are like a scribe, beware of the scribes, when you are like a scribe, your religion is being played out as an appearance. You're coming to church to be seen. You're, you're reading the Bible because you're supposed to. Okay? You're singing the songs of the words because you don't want to be seen not singing them. You're singing for the praise of men rather than the praise to your God. And Jesus says, beware of practicing a righteousness that is dependent upon what people think of you. Our righteousness is not dependent upon what other people think of us. Our righteousness is dependent upon what the Father sees in us. And if what he sees in us is to please men, then he's not seeing Jesus. What he wants to see in us is a sold-out heart for the Lord. One that is saying, Jesus, you are enough for me. You are all for me. And so he challenges these scribes who are puffed up by their long robes and their greetings in the marketplaces and their best seats in the synagogue. They're feeling good about themselves because the crowds are acknowledging their greatness. In the second scene in verses 41 to 44, we see Jesus and the disciples go into the treasury and it says this, he sat down opposite the treasury. So this is in the court of the women on, uh, in Herod's temple. So this is right outside the, the temple proper. Um, and inside the courts of the Gentiles. So surrounded by court of the Gentiles on both sides. You might remember that big picture of Herod's temple that I showed you a few weeks back. In the middle is a rectangle section, and the front of that is, uh, is the court of the women. So sorry I don't have the, that photo. That had been, been really helpful and a lot of forethought, but I didn't have that. So, um, so the court of the women is where they're at, and the treasury is there in the court of the women. So the, the women of the Jews were allowed to go this far. Okay, they couldn't go beyond this court. They could go to this court. And in this court is where we, they would keep the offering boxes for the temple. So if you were going to go and give a, a financial offering, like a money to give to the temple service, uh, then you would go to the court of the Gentiles and put it in the offering box there. So it says, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Verse 42, and a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow 
has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. As I look at this passage, um, it reminded me of, um, of one of these. Uh, you got that next picture, Aram? Remind me of this. You ever seen one of these? <laughs> you remember these? You put the coin in, and like it spins around and around and around and around and around. You know? Remember that sound? I love that part. Okay. Um, this is what it reminds me of, is that, that they're going into the court of the, of the women and, and that they're putting in their money. And, and actually what happens, get the next slide there. It'd be something kind of like this. This is a this is a artist rendering of the widow giving her two coins. There'd be a box here, and we don't know exactly exactly what the box looked like, but basically a box with a funnel, metal funnel on top. There, you see that? This metal funnel on top. And what would happen? Our understanding is like you're thinking, how does Jesus know that she gave two coins if he's just sitting there in the midst of a bunch of people in in the treasury? There's a couple of ways. The first is that. Uh, when someone gave to priestly service, they would actually go to an attending priest who is there taking offerings and say to the priest, I brought this much money and I'm giving it to the priestly service, to the Levites, right? The Levites who have no land, they have no ability to farm or, or property that is their own. They only have what comes to the temple. So what they're able to eat on, what they're able to survive on and, and provide for their families comes from a financial donation to the temple, to the priestly service. And so what would happen is that these rich people are coming in to the attending priest and saying, I've brought so many, you know, so many, whatever, uh, drachmas or whatever the currency is, right? I've brought that, that, and the attending priest would verify that this is the amount of money that is given. And he's actually announcing to the court, okay, this is how much the gift is. And then would also announce the purpose of that gift. So there's an attending priest next to this box receiving people who are saying, I want to give to the priestly service. And rich people go in there and say, 1,000, 2,000, whatever it is. And they're putting it in. And as they put it in, if it's coins, you hear it clanging against the walls of this funnel. So then the widow comes up and says, I, I, want, to give, uh, I want to give to the priestly service. And so the attending priest, probably laughing, uh, probably like condemning her in some way in his heart, goes, two pennies for the priestly service of the kingdom. Ding, ding. So Jesus says to his disciples, I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. They contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. What appears is not true, right? What appears, as you look at the scribes, is this life of holiness, this life set apart to God. But what is true is that they're simultaneously devouring widows' houses, what appears in the, the court of the women is that these rich people are funding the temple ministry. What great donors these are. But what is true is that the heart of the widow has given more than any of them combined. 
Because the thing is about giving to the Lord is that it's not actually about the amount. It, it actually has nothing to do with the amount that you give. Some people say, oh, 10% is a tithe, you know, in church, we should give 10%. That's what we should do. Because like this one reference back in the Old Testament said something about 10%, right? We don't even actually know what it is. We just think it's back there, okay? 10%, right? But God wants all of you. Uh, I think Marcus, I was talking to Marcus about this the other day. He said, my pastor one time said, it's like this. Um, Some people like to say, how much can I give to God? And his pastor liked to turn around and go, how much do you want to keep from God? Yikes. You want to keep 95%? You want to keep 80%? Like, how much are you keeping from him? See, the amount doesn't matter. God actually, I don't know if you know this, he created the world. So he doesn't actually need your money. (laughs) He has all that he needs to provide for all that he is doing. So the amount has very little to do with what is actually happening in reality. That's the beautiful thing about the kingdom. What you see is not really as important as what you don't see, which is the heart of what is happening. And that's why Jesus can say to his disciples, this poor widow gave more than all of them combined because she sold herself out to the Lord. She said, I have nothing else to live on. I could squirrel this away and keep adding to it slowly, but I know I'm giving to the priestly service of my God, and I will give it all. I I, I don't have anything else to give. I give it all to him. Shockingly, or not so shockingly, if you've been following along in Mark, um, the disciples come out of the temple with Jesus, right? And they come out of the temple, chapter 13, verses 1 to 2. And one of his disciples said to him, they're just like, think about what just has happened in the teaching, right? Uh, okay, don't worry about the appearance of these scribes because what's happening in their heart actually is they're devouring, devouring widows' uh, houses. And, oh, by the way, those rich people aren't the ones that gave the most. It's this poor widow that gave two pennies. That's the one that gave the most. This is what has just happened. And now as they come out of the temple, they're looking at that beautiful 15 football field, large temple that is being built with beautiful stones, and they say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Oh, man, we, we miss it so easily. And, and I'm not just, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself in this, and I hope you're talking to yourself too as you hear this. How quickly do we judge by appearance rather than what is really there. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Looking at Herod's temple that is like like 15 times bigger than Solomon's temple, who was like the richest man that had lived in history to that point. Okay, this is a very large building. And Jesus says, there's not one stone here that's not going to be toppled to nothing. And you could receive that in that moment as like metaphorical, like dust to dust, earth to earth, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, it's all going to go away. But 70, you know, 30 years later, it literally is destroyed. Okay? Crushed to the ground by Rome. Not rebuilt since 2,000 years ago. 
the disciples are still impressed by the appearance of things. And Jesus has already said of this temple, it is dead. It's dead. There's nothing that is being redeemed in this temple. Its meaning has been lost by its own people. They don't even understand that this widow's gift was the biggest gift. They're rather impressed by appearance. So let's rewind right before all these three scenes uh, back to what Jesus says to the scribes. Verses 35 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, we kind of wrestled with where to put this passage. We were talking about this on Thursday. We were like, kind of goes with the last passage, but I think it kind of goes with this passage too. So we, we left it here, and that's why I'm going to close with it. But what has happened before this passage is that Jesus has defeated the arguments of the Pharisees and the Herodians. He's defeated the arguments of the Sadducees. And he's uh, had a, I don't know, like an instructional moment, I'll call it, with one of the scribes. And then, later, he's calling out the scribes. So these first three tests have come from the outside to him. And as he's said, no, it's actually this way, not that way. No, it's this way, not that way. No, it's this way, not that way. He then takes control of the conversation. And says, you've asked me your questions, let me ask you a question. And this is the question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And we're like, well, he is, right? I mean, the Messiah is a descendant of David. We all believe that. Everyone everyone believes that, right? Everyone knows that, like, Jesus is... A descendant of David, like that's the, that's the Messiah was going to be the descendant of David. That's pretty well attested in Old Testament scripture that the Messiah was coming from this line. So why is Jesus asking this question? How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And he says in verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. So Jesus is recognizing that the Holy Spirit inspired David to say these words, these next words. And these words are from Psalm uh, 110, which is like the most quoted piece of scripture from the Old Testament throughout the New Testament. Okay, so this this is referred to over and over again in the New Testament. Um, And these are the words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37, David himself calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord. So how is the Messiah the son of David if David calls the Messiah his Lord? And the great throng of people heard him gladly, it says. So the traditional, understand, if you go back to 36 for me, uh, Abe, traditional understanding of this passage is that it refers to the Messiah. It's like basically unargued that Psalm 110 is about the coming Messiah. This is a prominent scripture about Messiah coming. Okay, 
So Jesus turns it on them and challenges them with the way he says this, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The understanding of the Messiah at this time is that Messiah, and even people at this point were saying Jesus is about to do this, that Jesus was coming to overthrow Rome and reestablish the authority of Israel in their land. This was, the, this was the presupposition about the Messiah, is that when Messiah comes, we will be in control of our land again. We will be sovereign over our land again. We will have our temple in our land and be sovereign again. This was their expectation that Messiah was going to reorder that and bring that back to life. So Jesus goes to this passage to say, what you are expecting in the Messiah is a man of the line of David. You're expecting a man to be representative of the Davidic line, a Davidic king, one who establishes a unified Israel. And so Jesus says, then why would David say, Yahweh said to Adonai, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, God said to my Lord. David puts himself under, not behind, but under the Messiah. The Messiah is not a fulfillment of David alone. He is David's Lord. So Jesus is challenging the scribes to not reduce the Messiah to some sort of earthly king. Their issue is that, that they are defining the Messiah in their own image rather than being defined by the image of God. They're defining Messiah in their image. They see we're under oppression by Rome. We need a Messiah to come unshackle us from Rome so that we can have authority again. But Jesus says that David did not consider the Messiah to be a representative of his reign, but rather called the Messiah his Lord. The Messiah is not an extension of David's authority. The Messiah predates David's authority. Now, usually the son would yield to the father, which is why he's saying, why does, why does David say that the Lord is his Lord? Because he is his Lord. Uh, just as Jesus challenged the, the, Samar or the, the uh, teachers of the law prior to say, you know, I am before Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying, I predate David. I am David's Lord. The Messiah is the Lord of David. What appears to be happening as Jesus comes victoriously into Jerusalem is the Messiah has come to unshackle Israel from Rome. But what is actually happening, the real thing that is happening, is that Messiah has come to free us from our own sin and to unite us with our Father in heaven. His dominion is one of spiritual authority where he is conquering every principality and power in the earth. 
by the death of himself on the cross. He was not here to reestablish the beauty of the temple, to keep a beautiful building standing. He was here to create a temple out of you and out of you and out of you and out of you and out of me. Establish something even more beautiful than what they saw with their eyes, but what is actually inside of our hearts. What appears to be is not the reality. And so as we wrap up, I want to challenge us with a few things. Um, <clears throat> the first is this, and maybe, maybe it's obvious from Jesus' challenge to the scribes, but she should not just be a challenge to the scribes, but should be a challenge to us too, to heed the, the words of the Lord, that our righteousness not be performed to please men. As if we're trying to be righteous, that others would approve of us, then we've already received our reward, which is the praise of men. So I challenge us with this question. What appearances are we hiding behind? What appearances are we hiding behind? We've all put them up there. We've put up our own defense mechanisms all the time. We say, I'm good. I'm having a great week. How are you, brother? Doing good? I'm asking you really quickly so they don't have to talk about how my week went because it was terrible. Right? We, we put up appearances by, well, I show up every Sunday, so I'm here, so I'm going to make sure everyone knows that I'm good, I'm good. But what is actually happening is something hard is happening in my heart, and I just don't want anybody to ask questions. So I'm going to show up so that nobody asks questions. Or the opposite, right? I'm going to not show up so that nobody asks questions because I don't want to face the questions, right? And so my challenge to us is, I don't know what it is, right? But what appearances are you putting up in your life? Am I putting up in my life to shield myself from showing what's actually going on in my heart? The scribes like to put up these white robes <laughs> and flowing long prayers with big words, right? See, we're good. We know everything. We're the most holy of all the people. Da, da, da. Song and dance, right? And the truth is they're, they're fraudulently taking money from widows. How far apart could those realities be? God calls us that, to, uh, in James it says, pure religion is this, to take care of the widows, Right? And they, who are putting themselves up as the most holy, actually asking people to financially support them as if they're like some scholarly chair, okay? And at the same time, defrauding widows. The appearance could not be further from the reality. And I would challenge us to hear that we are not exempt from that. Holy Spirit wants to talk to you and wants to talk to me about what appearances I'm putting up to shield myself from dealing with the root of what's in my heart. So I challenge you, if there's some barrier that you've put up to keep Holy Spirit from convicting you, 
or to keep your brothers and sisters from pressing into you. Lay your defenses down. This is a safe place where people love you and would give their lives for you, would literally die for you. And so lay your defenses down. Let the Spirit convict and challenge you to press into Jesus, your Lord. He isn't just some uh, earthly king that is here to order your life that it may be pretty and put together and proper. He's here to redeem your life and transform you from death to life. What appearances are we hiding behind? The second is this. Um, If we feel that our gift is small, we ought to offer all we have rather than think that we are not worthy. Um, uh, Oh yeah, there's that quote. Cool. One of the commentators I was reading about, reading from about uh, the widow's gift said this about the gift, which I thought was so profound. He said, that which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalized in the book of life. This penny of a donation had no bearing on the budget of a 15 football field size temple. <laughs> it's, it's not even a line item. There's no way to even track it in any meaningful way. It would be written off as an insignificant digit to the thing, okay? It makes no difference. But that's the gift that is written in the Word of God. Praise God. So the challenge to you is that, and to me, is that we look at ourselves and go, man, I just don't have anything to offer. I'm just so weak and other people are better than me and I've got this sin I'm trying to deal with. And I just, I'm just not worthy. I'm just broken. How do you think the widow felt? Broken? Unworthy? Small? Honestly, I bet she could feel that way. I bet she could. But I don't think she did. I think she knew that her gift was meaningful. Not because she was trying to boast about it, but because that's what she did. She literally said, I have no one else to depend on. I give it all to you, Lord. I bet her heart was correct. She wasn't looking to be made much of. She was just trying to be obedient to God and give to him as her provider. So it challenged us to to be like the widow and look at ourselves, broken as our offerings may be, and go, God, this is what I've got. Can you use it? I've got a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. Could you do something with that? Yeah, I could like feed 5,000 men and their families, right? Don't feel that your gift is small. Offer what you have because God has called it worthy. He is not worried about the size. He could care less. (laughs) He owns everything, okay? He's calling you in worship to give to him and say, God, I am with you. I give you... All, all of myself.
And finally, this, if we view Jesus as the scribes did, as just a man, as an earthly king, as a good teacher, then we too will only care about appearances. We will walk as the world walks, looking for Jesus to affirm every idol that we fashion in his name. Say, God, I'm going to build this business in your name. God, I'm going to buy this beautiful Hummer in your name. God, you know, I'm going to do what, I'm going to win the Super Bowl in your name, you know, whatever it is, right? Are we like the scribes just baptizing our desires in the name of Jesus? Or are we yielding to Jesus as our Lord, as the Messiah who is King of kings and Lord of lords? If we view Jesus as he truly is and not as he appears to be in our lives, but as he truly is, then we will be cut to the heart we will be undone. We'll be fully surrendered. There will not be anything that we have that we will not say, Lord, I give it all to you. I want to go your way. I glorify your name. I give you my week, my burdens of last week, my burdens of this week. I give them to you. I cannot solve them on my own. I need you and you alone. If we see Jesus for who he really is, we will stop hiding behind our appearances. And come lay ourselves down before him and ask for his rule and reign in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it is to our hearts. Um, God, we pray that we would see beyond appearances to what is true. God, we pray that any appearances that we're putting up as a defense would fade away in the light of your glory, God. That would be transformed again and again by a Messiah who willingly went to a cross that his body might be broken and his blood poured out for us to be restored to relationship with our Father in heaven. God, I pray that that simple truth, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, would daily, not in some overly emotional sense, not in some stoic, unattached sense, but daily, in the monotony of life, daily change my heart so to be more like yours. And God, help us not look down upon what we have to offer as if it's insignificant. In truth, God, we have nothing that compares to what you have. And so as the widow, we say, God, have it all. Have all of my life. Have my work. Have my family. 
have my time, have my talents, have my treasure, God, I give it all to you. May it be used for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.